year of my life. That's almost 52 years so far in the world. Welcome to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This March 3rd, 2020 edition, episode 136 of Nature Bats Last, comes to you live from Rikino Island in, in uh, New Zealand and also from Central Florida in the United States. This is Guy McPherson. We're joined today by... George Socrates on this show. George is known as something of a collapsitarian. He is an author, poet, and a scientist who blogs at Socrates.com. If you're like me, you'll need that spelled. So I'll spell it for you. It'll also be included in the show description once the archive is out. Socrates is spelled T-S-A-K-R-A-K-L-I-D-E-S. That's Socrates.com. On, on his blog, George writes about his thoughts on the future of civilization, the sensitivity and potential of our current situation, and how we might navigate the path ahead. A particularly informative essay posted February 22nd, 2020, at his blog asks the question, Why is humanity so stupid? The subtitle is, a biologist tries to answer the question intelligently. George, welcome to Nature Bass Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It is most certainly great to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you. And we're having a little technical difficulty on Kevin's end. Kevin, can you hear us? And if so, can you weigh in? Yes, I am back with you. Um, we've managed to connect the dots across the planet yet again. Hey, George, um, I'd like to discuss your recent essay titled Collapse Means Collapse. I'll quote one brief passage that is subtitled The Final Extinction. Quote, the rate of this acceleration is so fast that this has been termed the sixth mass extinction, a term not appropriate for this special event. Aside from this being the first mass extinction caused not by geologic or cosmogenic phenomena, but by another species, humans. It is also likely to be the last ex extinction or final extinction. Humans are taking down not just the life forms, but the infrastructure. As the play comes to a close and the audience and colorful actors leave the theater, there will never be another play. The audience seating is being ripped out, the curtains are being torn down, the stage is being disassembled and the lights turned off for the last time. The sooner that we accept that we have technically become extinct, the quicker we can retrieve the book from the bonfire." End quote. That's a very powerful um, essay that you've written. Thank you very much for having the courage to do so. Oh, it's, I mean, we're living in emotional times and um, I'm just expressing what I think most of us know um, pretty well deep inside and I think that uh, I know you uh, you turned me a collapsitarian I will accept the characterization uh, but the thing is we were coming on to become realists I think um, I think we're moving from the zoomosphere to the pragmatosphere and um, I think there is a, a certain sort of misconception 
uh, around collapse, as if it's a sudden thing, it's something quite spectacular. But the truth is, we have been in the process of collapse for a very long time, at least a few hundred years. Um, so I'm just stating, basically, the continuation of the trend that we are on and where we are heading, uh, given that our behavior is very, very unlikely to change, given how locked in we are into what I call the CO2 machine that you hear me talking about in my book a lot. What is this CO2 machine? It's essentially our civilization. Um, we all are tied into these jobs that we have to go to because we need the salaries to pay for stuff that we don't need, which will then emit CO2. And as, as intelligent as we can be, we can't unlock ourselves from this chain to the CO2 machine. Addicted. We're addicted and the whole culture is addicted to carbon, unfortunately. How, how has... Um, has you started t talking about this? How has that affected your personal life? What changes has it, has it brought about for you? So, I, it's a really good question, and I'm glad you asked this question, because it's very important that we talk about the effect, that the realization of the, the path that we are on with climate change has on our psyche. Uh, it, it, it is... It is an emotional process, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, our world is collapsing, our species are collapsing, our planet, as we know it, is falling apart. That must elicit an emotional response. I personally came into this world um, out of a personal struggle that I had in my life at work, uh, and uh, a couple of months after that, I also had my mother come sick with cancer, and it just uh, was a wake-up call for me. Um, I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but that's actually exactly how it happened. I, I had sort of um, negative things happen in my life that were a wake-up call to the fact of how fragile life is and how stupid our lifestyle is. We are killing ourselves and we are killing the planet. And the addiction that you talk about is also an addiction towards trauma. We seek trauma because trauma is actually what powers this civilization. Traumatizing and exploiting each other for money, traumatizing and exploiting nature, and also traumatizing ourselves. It is a cycle, and it's not a good cycle. That's a great point. George, in your February 18, 2020 blog post, you raised the question, are we technically extinct? That was, that's the first line in your blog post, which is titled, Collapse Means Collapse. Are we technically extinct? So, are we? This is the thing, I mean, again, people uh, talk about black and white. In my mind, it doesn't matter whether there's going to be uh, no humans left whatsoever, which I think is kind of unlikely, or whether there's going to be a few million left. Hell, maybe it might be 10 million. Does that actually make a difference? Because Earth will be, if it stays on the path that it is now, which is very difficult to avoid, Earth will be unrecognizable and very, very highly uninhabitable. 
to me, that is extinction. Uh, it might, like I said, there might be some people left, but, you know, and of course, uh, uh, the vast majority of other species uh, that we have already lost and that we will be losing at a rate that, um, I'm not sure, was it like a million species or 10 million that we're supposed to lose in the next years? I mean, the rate right now is kind of like losing species by the minute almost. Well, in fact, it is, and we are currently on a trajectory that has us losing, right now, about 10 times more species per day, per week, per month, whatever sort of metric you want to use, than we were losing during the so-called Great Dying, which is the worst of the previous six mass extinction events. We're now in the midst of the seventh. Uh, another was discovered relatively recently and reported in the peer-reviewed literature. So, you, the, the, you raise an important question or an important idea, so what if there are a few million people left, if there are up to 10 million people left? That's, that indicates to a lot of people that we could come back, that we will not be extinct, and in fact we might grow that population from a few million to, what, another 7.7 .7 billion or maybe a billion, whatever. So I think it's it's actually quite an important distinction between almost extinct and completely extinct, much like uh, Mad Max in The Princess Bride says there's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. So can you, do you care to comment on that idea? Um, I will dare to because I, I write from three places actually. I write using my scientist hat and my biology hat then I write from a spiritual place, and then I also write from the future. Sometimes I feel like I'm in the future, and I, I do, I am a futurist in the sense of being uh, fascinated with both positive and negative possibilities of the future. And what I see is that uh, I actually ask myself, uh, are we looking at a Mad Max scenario? What kind of humans will we be? Will we have uh, kind of reverted to purely kind of survival instincts? And I have, I have put that question before in my blogs. Basically, I, I've written a blog saying, you know, capitalism might survive even in the most adverse scenarios because it is just such a strong force to exploit, to make money. It, it could survive almost anything, the apocalypse. On the other hand, um, you could have, uh, you could hope for some kind of awakening in humanity after all the struggles and troubles that we've been through. But then again, you could look back in our history and say, why haven't we learned so far? <laughs> it's been a few thousand years. Uh, so, yeah, I'm kind of leaning toward the Mad Max, but um, it's kind of a bit macabre to kind of make speculations um, about, you know, times that are at least, I would like to think, the generation uh, ahead of us um, and, and times when I kind of feel like um, it, it kind of doesn't matter anymore. I mean, our species will have lost all credibility, let's say, on the face of the earth. It's, uh, it, 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 it would be 
a very different civilization, and I, I can't I can't think further as to what that might be. But um, one of my favorite movies actually is Blade Runner, and I I see a lot of parallels with Blade Runner. It's an example of a world where um, basically ecosystems have collapsed. Uh, not even trees can grow outside. Yet humans have found some kind of synthetic way to manufacture some really bad tasting food. Um, who knows? So, are you familiar with the aerosol, the aerosol masking effect, sometimes called global dimming? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a very uh, it's a it's a very scary thing uh, actually, and um, I, I know that you're an expert in that field. Uh, we we need more of that research, don't we? Um, I was going to ask you actually how how you you feel. Because uh, I saw your video about the potential impacts of the coronavirus on the uh, kind of, I guess, a big pause maybe on global dimming. Is there um, the European kind of a way that we could be um, getting evidence of that? Yes. In fact, the latest research from Rosenfeld and colleagues published in Science last year about this time indicates that as little as a 20% reduction in industrial activity would cause a one degree Celsius global average temperature rise. And obviously that would be faster than any rate of environmental change known even in prehistory, far faster than we are proceeding now. Global average temperature is up about one and three quarter degrees since 1750, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And so an additional one degree temperature change in a matter of days or weeks as a result of reduction or loss of the aerosol masking effect would be unbelievably catastrophic. It's difficult for me to imagine very many species and certainly not as complex a species as ours surviving such an event. That's why it's, I think it's important to talk about this phenomenon, the aerosol masking effect or global dimming, that almost nobody is willing to talk about. You don't see anybody from the Extinction Rebellion group talking about it. You don't see anybody from the, essentially the mainstream scientific community raising the issue of what happens when we lose the masking effect. And that's why I think it's critically important to talk about the rate of environmental change and its importance. And so that's why I raised it with you. And there has been quite a bit of work done. Obviously, researchers would claim that we always need more. But at this point, I'm not sure about that, whether it's 20% or 40% reduction in industrial activity that causes that rapid global average temperature rise. I think we're headed for that, that event in the not too distant future. And it could be triggered by the coronavirus or maybe not. Maybe it'll be a cascading series of events that trigger that temperature rise. For me, that what I think it, it shows is how tenuous our position has become. And it's just the coronavirus is just one more black swan to appear out of nowhere and show us mm. how vulnerable we are. <clears throat> hey, yeah. uh, 
George, I'd like to to know what you think of the cognitive dissonance and it and outright lies from the scientific community and the large NGOs on the severity of the crises we face. None of those organisations that I've mentioned are telling the full truth. Well, I mean, there's multiple issues. I, I've, I've, I've talked about this a lot. I mean, it's not... If we can, I think, the more obvious ones is that you know, people have vested interests, they, uh, there is corruption, there is inaction because of the sort of um, consensus that re is required among, you know, for example, the delegates in IPCC conventions where they select the lowest common denominator of all readings because of this consensus. You know, this is how our society and our politics and our democracy uh, works. Uh, but I'm going to put that aside because that's actually the obvious one. What is not obvious is what I call the mind prison, which I, again, I talk about in my book, um, uh, which just came out. And uh, it, it, it's about what we actually do to ourselves. We tend to censor ourselves. And because of the lifestyle that we have, um, you know, getting in our cars, going to work, thinking about our day-to-day -day survival, we are all asleep and uh, our system, our economic system actually feeds on that. It wants us to be asleep because the more asleep we are, the more we get into this robotic um, way of living where we spend money, we earn money, we spend money, we earn money, and that's all we do. We never stop to think. Um, if we were able to think, uh, then we would realize the situation that we are in. And obviously I'm in a group of people right now that are what I call awakened people. Uh, so there are awakened people that for one reason or another uh, have, have been able to kind of think in the big picture of, of where our civilization uh, is going. And there are, I mean, there are many of them. It's just that they don't hold the power and the reins to this economic system that keeps exploiting, keeps corrupting, it keeps influencing our politics and our politicians and our governments who are basically in bed with the private sector. Uh, it, it's really, I think, um, going back to my book again, where I try to kind of schematize this, thinking in scientific terms of, you know, Earth circular systems, and then what we've done to them in terms of our imperfect um, uh, cycles that we have um, parasitized the Earth systems with. The profit, what I call the profit cycle, is the most dangerous and is really at the center of this. I'd like to point out that if you're listening live, you're welcome to call in with questions or comments for us or George. Our toll-free number is 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888 in the United States. And 011-605-562-5119 outside of the United States. That's 011 605-562-5119 outside the United States. These numbers are included at the bottom of my latest blog post at the Nature Bath's last blog, GuyMcPherson.com. So, Kevin, did you have a follow-up question? 
I do. Um, George, you mentioned recently that your, your new book titled Disposable Earth, How and Why We Gave Our Planet an Expiration Date. You mentioned it's trending at number one and new book releases in the weather category. Can you give us an overview of the book, please? Uh, sure. So the book is a collection of essays, actually, that um, try to describe, to understand what what I call the Anthropocene, spelled with an S-I-N, actually, which is, um, so what, what humans have, have caused on the planet, and this is, this is no new news, but I think it's, it, it's easier for people to understand what Earth used to be. So Earth used to be an immortal, regenerative machine. So you have the water cycle, the carbon cycle, uh, light, air, you know, everything was recycled, like a battery that fully discharges and charges in a perfect way to eternity. So we took that and we converted those circular cyclical processes into linear processes. Uh, so just like a chemical reaction that is converted from a cyclical reaction to a linear reaction, it will soon run out of substrate. And so we disturb the carbon cycle, but this is kind of only the obvious uh, sort of side effect. We talk about climate change and we talk about CO2 emissions, but the reality is that the, the systems that control the Earth's atmosphere and oceans have now moved from the oceans, from the atmosphere, onto Twitter, onto politics, corruption, and all these other cycles, which are actually quite leaky. They're not perfect cycles, so they're not fully regenerated. They all leak CO2. And I, I've given them nicknames. So I talk about, for example, the, uh, uh, the hate cycle. I talk about the fake news cesspool. I talk about the, the plastic bank where everything ends up and just piles up. So obviously there's no cycle there. It's a linear process. I talk about things like exploitation and fascism and all of these things are connected. So earth systems have actually moved online into our politics and into our society into a really toxic, and imperfect uh, machine, which is leaky and it is linear and it's soon going to run out of fuel. I think that is one of the things that uh, Guy and I try and ex um, emphasize the most is that we're now in the non-linear stage of, of the unraveling. Everything is happening at an accelerating rate. And we, I often quote Albert Bartlett, him saying that uh, one of the great shortcomings of the human race is our inability to understand the exponential function. Yeah, we are in uh, uncharted territory. Our science uh, is unable to predict this acceleration that we see you know, in the last uh, couple of years where we see that um, prediction after prediction is shot down and scientists are raising their ha hands in the air and um, the only hope I have is that uh, 
perhaps we are so wrong that maybe if something like coronavirus reduces emissions so much and maybe global dimming uh, is, is affected as well, maybe there is some kind of a positive feedback loop that we didn't know about. Though I really seriously doubt that because there's no match for the perfection that Earth was and its systems. It developed over millions, billions of years, and it was so finely balanced that there's no way for humans to actually be able to replicate that or to put it back on course just by doing a couple of tweaks here and there. When they don't actually understand the full inner workings of this machine, um, and this is this is why I don't like the term Anthropocene. I think it's too kind to humans. We didn't we didn't actually affect the machine. We broke the controls, and we don't even know what controls we broke. This this is the thing, uh, the arrogance that we have that we think that we understand how Earth operates. Um, I think is is quite big. Catastrophically so. Uh, it looks like we've got Jeffrey from San Francisco who wants to ask a question. Hi, Jeffrey. What would you like to ask? Oh, hey, um, George. I've enjoyed becoming familiar with your work over uh, the past couple of days, and, and thanks for being on the show. I just wanted to ask you whether you'd be willing to look at some of a guy's materials, and I, I could send you some of the things offline. And one particular article is called Extinction Ignored, Extinction Foretold. But one of the things that looks like is happening, according to the peer-reviewed journals, is we're getting, even without the aerosol masking effect, and please jump in if I've got this wrong, we're just now hitting over the next couple of years an exponential rise, and there are a couple of papers that say once we hit a maybe three, maybe four degrees centigrade above the 1750 baseline. That's the simple way I could say it. The vegetation will just not be able to keep up. So it looks, and we're also headed to a completely different makeup of chemistry on the planet within certainly by 2030. So to me, that spells absolute extinction. And I, I don't want to put you on the spot, George, but I was curious if you have a reaction to such a stark science or whether maybe you'll come on the show again. Anyway, that's enough for me. I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, thank you very much for the question. I mean, I, I do have three science degrees, but I don't have a climate science degree. And even if I did have a climate science degree, I would still not really be able to give an opinion that I think that I could 100% stand by. Um, so it goes back to what I said earlier, that this machine is so mystical, so complex, that we can't really predict exactly where it's going to go. And this is scary. It is scary that you described to me a scenario, and I can't actually tell you that that's not going to happen. I'm not able to, to rule that out. Um, and, and that's all really I can say to that. Given the current rate of change and using the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's incredibly conservative representative concentration pathways, 
A paper by Burke and colleagues published in the December 26, 2018 issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences indicates that we're headed for the Pliocene as early as 2030. Pliocene was two, two or three degrees Celsius warmer than it is right now. That rate of change is far faster than anything humans have survived in the past. Can you comment on your understanding of the rate of change and its importance to the survival of species, including, of course, our favorite species, Homo sapiens? Uh, I mean, I think what is, uh, uh, what is really shocking is that you can actually, for anyone that is our age, I'll put us all together, you know, people who have lived a few decades, the fact that we can already tell in our lifetime the changes that have happened in terms of both, you know, ecological collapse. We go out and we see fewer insects than we did when we were kids. You know, we already see, uh, you know, my, my parents' um, seaside home has been flooded this winter, both from a river as well as from the ocean. It just knocked down the walls and, uh, you know, that's obviously uh, sea rise level within 30 years that is becoming perceptible. So, uh, the, look, the path is the path that we have been on for a while. The change has been happening for a while. We can compare today to 30, 50 years ago. And simply by projecting that and slightly accelerating it, because things are accelerating when you look at the temperature, it, it's no it's no one's opinion, it's the facts. The facts are that this is where we're heading. And uh, things like the Amazon fires and Australian fires are just beyond any reality that anyone could have ever expected. Um, this is really uncharted territory and uh, I'll be very interested to see what happens this summer in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, is the Arctic going to be on fire again? You know, what, what development can we uh, potentially see? Uh, it's, it's very alarming, the rate at which um, we've seen this, this acceleration. One of the statistics that I saw this week is that in this fire season in Australia, they've lost 20% of all of their forests on that continent. Yeah, I saw that, and that is an absolutely shocking number for uh, what you say is not a country, it is a continent. And they've lost one-fifth. Yeah. But one, one thing that people forget about that is that we've lost a fifth of the carbon sinks that were in that country. We've All of that carbon that was sequestered in those forests have been emitted in a feedback loop. I... I it just seems like we're watching the snowball roll down the hill and get bigger and bigger and bigger with every revolution. Yeah. And, uh, you know, going back to my sort of reference of the other cycles that are going on in society, we have seen an increase in fascism um, and, you know, across, across the world. I mean, I will, to me, fascism is a more kind of, I, I, I don't like to use, um, kind of standard terms, but we have a right wing, at least when it comes to the environment policy across the earth, the, all the big economies from Brazil to the US, the UK now, Australia, India, 
Russia. It, it just doesn't end. Um, and this is exacerbating the situation. Uh, you know, Bolsonaro with his fires in the Amazon, that was another huge carbon sink. And uh, the question that I always ask is, again, are we looking at the Mad Max scenario where capitalism survives in its most traumatic, uh, in its most extreme form, taking us literally back to slavery, um, slavery, slavery with real chains. We are slaves as well at the moment. We're slaves to our phones, we're slaves to the CO2 machine, but things could get even worse. Or are we looking at some kind of uh, correction, some kind of awakening? And again, looking at the last five years in terms of regimes around the world, things are actually getting worse. <laughs> uh, things are getting well, worse. Well, look at the situation of Julian Assange. We're watching Julian Assange, a journalist that, that exposed war crimes, we're watching him being slowly murdered in public by, by the British um, justice system. And they're making it very clear that that's what they're doing. That's a reflection of how, how totalitarian it's become and how obvious and blatant they're prepared to be in front of us. But th this is what will happen. This is the system basically fighting back. The more that there is resistance to the system, the more the system will fight back, and this is what I call the clash of the two machines, because so far, the Earth machine and the CO2 machine have been kind of courting each other, being slightly separate. You know, we looked in the, in the age of the 80s where you had the Greenpeace and the, you know, the Friends of the Earth, and you could just kind of take the environmental cause and just put it up on your wall and just look at it and smile and just go, yeah, I'm sending my checks every once in a while. Now these two machines are finally face to face with each other, and it's going to be um, quite intense. And uh, we're going to see more of these, uh, you know, uh, limitations of people's freedom of speech. Uh, you could have Extinction Rebellion is almost a terrorist organization now, unofficially or officially in the UK, depending on who you ask. Um, it's it's going to get interesting. I fear for for um, how our society uh, could handle this, and I uh, my my fear goes up and down the chain of society, both in terms of our leaders as well as the ordinary people who will not want to give up their ethnicity. They will not want to do the sacrifices that you know. I think one of the most surreal images that I remember was during the Australian fires when, um, I forget the name of the seaside town where people were just basically locked in, but they all went to the beach and they were on their smartphones at the beach looking at the Sydney fireworks, the fireworks, fire, <laughs> while everything was burning. <laughs> while they were escaping from fire, they went on their smartphones to look at fireworks. I mean, it doesn't get more surreal than that. Which is why my, one of my most latest articles is called Why is Humanity Stupid? It's not meant to be a joke. I'm actually asking the question. <laughs> so, your first comment, George, was that people formerly called doomers are now known as realists. And we're starting to seriously get into society and societal, the societal response to where we're at. 
So can you project a little further? Are we nearing the end of this set of living arrangements of industrial civilization? Are we going, and so beyond, beyond capitalism now, are we on the verge of ending the set of living arrangements that we all grew up with? And if so, what does that mean? What's the, what's the timing and what does that mean? What comes next? Well, um, I mean, look at uh, the most recent generation, Generation Z. Everyone accepts that Generation Z uh, has less opportunities, um, uh, less healthy lifestyle. Um, you know, a lot of Generation Z is coming down with mental illness, anxiety. Um, this is a far cry from where their parents and their uh, grandparents used to be. Um, it's it's no um, it, it's no secret. I mean, population is increasing, and there's fewer resources on the planet. So there's more competition for resources, and our lifestyle is being affected. Um, what we do forget, however, is that it only takes a few extreme events, such as the coronavirus or some some other um, action or event that damages this very sensitive global trading system, this global economy with these massive ships carrying containers across the earth <laughs> with apples, you know, sending apples uh, from New Zealand to South Africa to get them waxed and then sending them over to the UK to sell them. I mean, it's, this system is very, very sensitive to disruption. And this is where I'm curious again with you know things like coronavirus and other sort of curveballs, curveballs that the Earth could throw at us, uh, which it probably does have up its sleeve. Uh, these are warnings to us, but at the same time, these could be big bumps that every time they happen, they take us another notch down. And I'm not sure if I actually answered your question. That's that's all right. I'm not sure it was answerable. If you're listening live, give us a call with your questions or comments. Toll-free number in the United States is 888-874-4888. And good luck trying to call from outside the United States at 011-605-562-5119. So... Where, where do we go individually? Let's say the worst case scenario comes to pass, that industrial civilization collapses in a heap by next Tuesday. And then where, what, what does that mean for you and me and our listeners as individuals? Well, I'm not going to have any food in the supermarket. I live in a city. So my immediate uh, question would be, where's my food? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's going to be quite abrupt if that happens. And, you know, again, coronavirus is kind of a bit of a taste of what is possible. Um, our system is very sensitive. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, we, we have a very high population that we need to feed every day. And any sort of disruption will basically mean, um, I fear that there will be chaos, uh, social chaos, um, 
and uh, I think that uh, I actually struggle. I struggle to think of where we will be because it will be a very, very different uh, place, a very different society. Right, and there might be social chaos, but that doesn't mean that you and I have to participate. Absolutely. So I'm wondering, let's say next Tuesday, chaos breaks out in your neighborhood, though the water stops running out of the taps, there's a lot of confusion, there's no food at the grocery stores, the three-day supply has run out. Then what? What do you do as an individual? Um, do, you, do you have people you live with? Do you have neighbors you know? Do you huddle in and wait for the power and the water to, to come on again? I'm, I'm wondering as an individual your response. And I hate to put you on, a, on the spot like this, but... No, no, no. Well, I think that um, I would definitely try to connect more with people have a circle around me. My family doesn't live in this country, but I would try to connect more with a community because the thing is, we are a communal species. Uh, we do need each other, and we have evolved that way through thousands of years. So we, like, we literally cannot operate completely by ourselves. But at the same time, I would try to turn myself into a little MacGyver. <laughs> I mean, there's... Uh, there's so much that we are we, we are spoiled, uh, let's put it that way, in so many ways. You know, you can collect water from the rain, you can purify water, you can you know, you can learn to you can learn to survive with really meager um, kind of um, um, supplies. And this is a lesson again that we would learn in this situation. Uh, but we would also uh, we would also uh, need each other i i um yeah it, it would be a moment of waking up and waking up it's to be honest a bad thing because i believe all of us are uh, are asleep in many ways so how do you respond today do you inform people that this set of living arrangements might have a limited shelf life is that the kind of conversation you have with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors, that sort of thing? I mean, what what kinds of steps are you taking today in light of the future that appears to be chaotic, no matter how quickly that comes? I don't actually prepare for the future. A, because we don't know how quickly that situation might, might dawn on us. Um, it could be more gradual. And also, I, I don't believe in preparing for for something that we cannot define as. Um, I think I would actually be pretty bad at preparing. I would sort of trust fate. Um, I'm not. I'm not in this sort of crowd of like the preppers and the people who are kind of trying to get. Just I find that a bit obsessive. I find that a bit um, um, uncultic, actually, just trying to prepare for eventualities. You really, you don't know what's going to run out first, whether it's going to be water or whether you don't have any sun or it, it's just, there's too much uncertainty 
to plan for it, in my opinion, which is well, why I'm just going to basically wake up and, and use my brain and, <laughs> and see what happens. Well, I agree with that. And so that's why I asked the question, are you telling anybody today? Are you trying to inform people what you think lies ahead? Maybe encourage people to read your work, that sort of thing. Or are you just, are you going to wait until the, there's, there's no food in your neighborhood and then bring up the issue? Oh, by the way, we should start thinking about this. Well, my writing is the main the main way in which I try to communicate with people. Uh, I find that it's it's a a, a role of, of reaching out to people but at the same time educating them in an issue that is just so complex uh, and difficult. And this is the challenge that we have as a humanity to wake up. That it is a scientific, a spiritual, an emotional. Uh, a, a very complicated bundle of issues that are, sadly are very low on the awareness of the, the general population. Um, so I, I don't have many of these conversations. Um, I have a, a close circle of friends uh, that, um, that I do have the conversations with, um, but it, it's uh, it's not a dinner time conversation with family. That is something I wanted to uh, bring up with you. How, how has um, coming to these conclusions altered your relationships with friends and family? Uh, I think it went through stages. So there was, there was kind of a, uh, obviously a kind of a depressed state at first. You know, being a scientist and being a biologist and understanding that we're losing all these species, uh, you go through a lot of emotions and you go through a lot of conversations with yourself. You, know, you go through uh, depression, anger, uh, guilt, guilt for being human. Uh, you know, um, there's a lot of ups and downs. Uh, where I sort of settled, let's say, in the end was uh, simply living more for, for today and uh, getting some satisfaction by, by uh, reaching out to people that do understand and writing more. Writing is something that I do not only for communication and education, but I do it for myself. It is very, very therapeutic. And cathartic. Very cathartic, indeed. Okay, it looks like we've got another guest. Studio, would you like to put our next um, questioner on, please? It's Mimi from Portland. Go, Mimi. Hey, hi, everyone. Thanks for the show. Um, I, I have a question which, um, well, I'll just get to the point. I haven't heard the guest say anything definitive regarding what he would say what he does say or what he will say to people who are dealing with the knowledge from um, scientists like Guy who puts out such informative facts about what is happening right now. And I, it, it bothers me that it almost seems like there's no commitment 
to our extinction, to what's actually happening in reality from the guest. And I'm wondering if he might speak to that rather than sort of what seems to me to be shirking the issues that Guy's been asking him. Um, I'll just leave it there. Um, I, I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, uh, was it about lack? I heard the words lack of commitment to the extinction. To, to the facts of what's going on right now with um, abrupt, irreversible climate change, with what's going on leading to the sixth extinction, which we're currently involved in, you mentioned, you, you used the word opinion earlier. If you had more information, you still would be hesitant to give your opinion on what's going on. And in my, in, in my world, it's not about opinions. It's about facts, which are clearly stated mm. in Guy's work. So mm. I'm wondering, first, what you do say to people when they ask you about these things. Like Guy says to people, he'll, he'll repeat the science, he'll repeat the facts. And do you use the facts, for instance, that Guy has been putting out? Or I don't, I don't know any other scientists who are really putting them out other than who Guy references. And there are quite a few. And Kevin and Guy put those science, put those science, the scientists out along with the facts. And I'm wondering if you repeat those to people or if there's a reason that you don't. Um, I, I follow what uh, the, most of the... I mean, the, it, the scientific reports that have come out, the, the ones that point out to uh, the sixth mass extinction, I completely agree with them. Uh, to me, it's, it's quite obvious. Uh, now, do I quote them? No, I stopped looking at scientific reports 10 years ago because I knew, uh, as a scientist, all I had to see is, I think, 2007, The Inconvenient Truth, and that was the end for me. I stopped looking at data that day, um, and, which is why I'm not sure if my words have been misunderstood, but when I was talking about opinion was regarding the actual severity of the scenario in which we're going to. I have no qualms and no... Um, uh, I have no doubt that it is severe, it will be severe. So but, then how uh, can you say then that if we know that we're in the sixth extinction now, we're way into it, that there will be people left behind with no habitat, that somehow some miracle will occur and there might be people here and if there are people here that there will also be um, ways in which people will be making money off of each other and continuing this process that got us into this place in the first place after extinction, as if there is an after extinction. That's what I'm getting from you, that somehow there is an after extinction once we are extinct, and I find that contradictory. Yeah, it's, I am contradictory, and I am contradictory because I can't predict. So it goes back to what I was saying, is it that everyone, every single human is going to be lost? Or could there be a few thousand or a million? But what I am not going to be contradictory about is that their life will be severely substandard. And we can't even begin to define what that life will be. It might actually be a few thousand people living on some um, bank of rice that was kind of, you know, left out when people just kind of 
uh, you know, were running for their lives. Like, who knows? But it, 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 the it, point is might... that, to me, it doesn't matter that much because to me that's almost the same thing as extinction. It's not, it, it's far far from the, the glory of what humans used to be. For me, what hey, folks, um, we're going to have to um, wind this show up. We're coming to the end now. Thank you very much, Mimi and Jeff, for your calls. Um, you can catch NBL on PRN on the first Tuesday afternoon of each month at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The next episode will feature a conversation with Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. It will be broadcast live on Tuesday afternoon, the 7th of April. If you missed the broadcast, you can find shows in the archives, PRN, the Podbean, or at Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Also, continue to follow the Nature Bats uh, Bats last blog, guymcpherson.com, for further updates, interviews, and speaking tours. And you can keep current with my work at kevinhester.live. Bye. Thanks again to today's guest. George Sacralides and our listeners, of course, and also to Afrizin for his music. Until next time, remember the dominant culture has been very clever, but in the end, nature bats last. <laughs>